You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Monday, April 23rd, the Institute of Politics, Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, Harvard Kennedy School Black Student Union, Harvard Kennedy School Arts and Culture Caucus, and the Institute of Politics, Politics of Race and Ethnicity hosted a screening of Stranger Fruit, a documentary about the killing of Michael Brown, followed by a forum discussion titled, The Movement for Black Lives, Justice for Michael Brown Four Years Later. The discussion featured Benjamin Crump, attorney for families of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and Stephon Clark, Leslie McSpaden, mother of Michael Brown, Jason Pollock, documentary filmmaker, Stranger Fruit, and Jasmine Rand, attorney for families of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. Khalil Gibran Muhammad, professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and Suzanne Young Murray, professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, and Ashley Spillane, senior advisor to the Institute of Politics at Harvard Kennedy School, Roy and Lila Ashfellow at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, both moderated the conversation. Let's listen in. Jenkins, a freshman at Harvard College, a member of the JFK Junior Forum, and the co-chair of the Politics of Race and Ethnicity program here at the IOP. It has been almost four years since Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. Since that time, Alton Sterling, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Stephon Clark, Freddie Gray, and so many others have been killed at the hands of the police. As many of you know, our Harvard community has very recently experienced an incident of police brutality, which has mobilized a new coalition of students demanding change. So the opportunity to host tonight's event is particularly important and timely. Stranger Fruit is a documentary about the killing of Michael Brown and the family's ongoing search for justice. We'll be showing clips from the film that may be difficult to watch. This conversation may be difficult but it is necessary. We'll start tonight's program with a trailer from the film, so please direct your attention to the screen behind me. In August of 2014, protests began in Ferguson, Missouri, and then spread across the USA. These were the largest protests since Occupy Wall Street and the Iraq War protests. Unlike those, however, these were focused on something that most white Americans had thought was a problem long gone. Race. The protests and the bigger issue of race in America made headlines in newspapers and magazines, and for months was the dominant story on TV. The spotlight shining on Ferguson revealed a country still torn by racial equality and caused us to question what it meant to be an American in the 21st century and what it meant to not be represented by our government. It caused vitriolic op-eds in newspapers and on TV. Politicians either ran for cover or doubled down on racial hostility. Seemingly idyllic communities were torn apart. These protests were a turning point in the history of America. And it all began on one hot August afternoon. Please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, Benjamin Crump, 
Leslie McSpadden, Jason Pollock, Jasmine Rand, and tonight's moderators, Khalil Muhammad and Ashley Spillane. Welcome to Harvard. We are so happy you're here. This is really impressive turnout, which I think just goes to show you how much we all care and still do about this. So I will kick this off by asking Jason, Leslie, Ben, Jasmine, what made you all work on this documentary together? Okay. Um, uh, <clears throat> I was uh, living in LA when Michael died, uh, running a creative agency. I had a lot of celebrity clients and I was working with uh, them on digital strategy and I was producing other films, trying to get films off the ground. And I decided to put my stuff in storage and uh, basically move to Ferguson because I was really, really mad. And I felt like as a white man, I didn't, I felt very alone being mad. No one else that I knew that was white really even cared about what was going on in Ferguson. So. I uh, put my stuff in storage and I went there uh, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do there. I didn't really want to go there with a Christopher Columbus-like attitude, like I was there to save the day. Um, I wanted to be an ally and be a supporter. And I saw a lot of different films and things happening there and a lot of different stories being told. But I didn't see anyone talking about the case of Mike Brown. And to me, that felt like the most important thing. It was why I went there. It was what I thought everyone was protesting for, justice for Mike Brown. But the Ferguson protests became, became something so much more and went in so many different directions. And I feel like the government and the powers that be always try to distract us from what's really important, which is justice for the murder that just took place. They want us talking about the, the streets. They want us looking at protests and being distracted by all those things. So. Um, about eight months into being there, I uh, met with Leslie, and um, I had made a trailer. I'd worked for like four months before I met with her. Uh, I was really nervous about it and wanted to show her what I was working on and to see if I could get permission from her. And then we, she saw the trailer, and we started working together. Uh, she gave me permission and uh, the rights to do it, and we started working together in June of 2015. So it's been three years. Three long years. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Oh. Now you owe me a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Mike's playing games on us right now at Harvard. <laughs> I'm so telling you. So let, 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 me, let me just say this. Um, you know, we're at Harvard, which doesn't mean uh, anything more than that it's any place of thoughtful people interested in one of the most important cases of the 21st century. And so, the, uh, by a show of hands, how many people here just left seeing the film? Wow. And so, you have people who are deeply uh, invested in this story 
and they want to understand how for you being able to tell this story in light of all that's happened since Mike's death, um, that's what they want to understand, how you see this project as something that will give you closure or justice. I'm hoping that it will change the hearts of a lot of people in Missouri who hold the authority to convict and prosecute. Of course, I want justice for my son. He deserves it. Because what happened to him, he didn't deserve it. This isn't easy to talk about. Mm -hmm. It isn't easy to revisit every day, but the Department of Justice told me that I had to carry the burden, that they wouldn't. So I appreciate people like Jason and Crump and Jasmine and other people in the world who are supporting us to keep fighting to reveal the truth, the cover up of Ferguson and what they did not do. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really easy in, in instances like this. You know, we read history, uh, we read the newspaper, uh, but many people, um, these are headlines and abstractions. And I think that what's not only incredible about the film is that it is about Michael's life yes. as much as it is about his death. Right. And here you are with us. So I just think that your courage, your sacrifice, and your commitment to what Mike's legacy is and how others can learn from it is really important. I agree. Yeah. Thank a you. And, the, and the, pain, the pain that she bears for all of us because she doesn't have to be here, and she doesn't get a lot out of coming to speak about the death of her son. She does it for us. She comes from the murder capital of the country. While Donald Trump wants to make us afraid of Chicago, Chicago isn't even in the top 10 of murder capitals per capita. And St. Louis is number one. It's a war zone. That's where she came from to see us today. So I just want to just mention that because I think a lot of people like see the hashtag, but they don't realize how much of a human story there is behind these things and how much pain there is and how brave she has been to bear this for all of us so that we can all learn from it, basically. So I was thinking, you know, um, uh, Ben and, and, and Jasmine could talk about the arguments. So uh, I took a lot of notes of things that are just in incredibly contradictory from uh, the story that I watched, uh, the reports I read from the Department of Justice, but maybe just talk in summary about the key elements of the case that the film makes that for you is about reopening this case as a civil rights uh, investigation. The film really highlights uh, a lot of what people didn't see while we were litigating the case, uh, namely because there were numerous protective orders in place which prohibited the attorneys from speaking as the case was going on and prohibited us from sharing with you so much of the evidence that we were actually able to uncover. And Jason, you know, through Stranger Fruit, has done an incredible job of bringing you guys critical evidence that was previously concealed and withheld from the general public. Um, you know, one of the biggest pieces of evidence to me in, in exploring the civil rights aspect of the case 
um, was the fact that he said, uh, Darren Wilson said he had to reach for his waistband, which we obviously know has been disproven because there was no, uh, Michael Brown's hand was bleeding by that time and there was no blood in the waistband. Um, and he also never said that uh, to so Sergeant Mudd. Well, Darren Wilson had shot him in the hand. Right, Darren Wilson shot him in the hand, so that's why his hand was bleeding. Um, and he says he's going to, to reach for his waistband. We know there's no gun, right? So he's reaching for an invisible gun in his waistband. He's, he's reach, reaching for a non-existent gun. This, a lot of people aren't accustomed to reading police reports. Uh, Benjamin Crump and I read police reports every single day. And almost without fail, officers in unjustified shootings always say that the victim was reaching for a gun. The gun never exists. It's something that the officers are trained to say, and it becomes one of the biggest excuses that they use to shoot and kill mostly young minority men in our country. And, of course, from the video, we know that his waist was several inches below, or his waistband was several right. inches below his waist, which is one of the arguments that, that Jason and others make in the film. Yeah, uh, he had shorts on. They were falling down. There was nothing, there was nowhere for a gun. You can't put gun in like champion basketball shorts. Like it's, it's, it's just an insane argument. I, I think um, the first question I wanna uh, address why work on this uh, film project, I think for Jasmine and Daryl Parks and all the other lawyers involved in the case uh, is why we got involved in the case in the first place, because for me, I always think that it's not just about a case. If I get involved, it's about a cause. And the thing is, when I take a case, it really has to shock my conscience, because I know when we're suing police officers, let's face it, we live in America, they always believe what the police say is the gospel and what the little black and brown people say is, eh, that's an exaggeration, that's not really true. And so it has to shock the conscience. And I remember the thing that shocked my conscience so much about Michael Brown being killed is watching the coverage of him laying out on the street mm -hmm. and watching his mother trying with all her heart to get to her baby. And I just kept thinking, my mother had boys and if that was us, my mother would be just like Leslie McSpadden trying to get to her baby. And they had police dogs out there. They had the tape out there. And they had all these things where she couldn't just go lift his head up off the hot concrete. And so it just shocked my conscience. The more time went and the more she continued the whole time becoming outraged at times, uh, the range of emotions becoming very um, depressed, I would imagine, at four hours trying to get to him and couldn't get to him. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I think about the just lunacy and the arguments they were making, I don't know any young black man who has been shot by the police running away from the police is going to stop and turn around and then come at the police who he knows has a gun and knows that he will use it because he's already shot him. I mean, it's just a, a, a crazy argument they asked America to believe. And but he said he had a gun. Yeah. He believed Michael had a gun. But he got out of his car 
he chased him. He ran after him. He let him get down on his knees. But the whole time you thought he had a gun. It, it flies in the face of common sense. And then to, it's broad daylight. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. It's broad daylight. Y you know, maybe if it's n at nighttime, you can say, well, I couldn't tell whether he had a gun or not. He knew what kind of clothes Mike was wearing. He clearly knew that, hold on, I can see if he has a gun in his waistband. Right. Everything is elastic at this point. But yet, they accepted the police narrative. I call it the standard police narrative. And unfortunately, the United States Supreme Court says, you know, anytime the police kill a little black or brown person, uh, normally, uh, if you say these three little words, you get a pass. I felt in fear of my life. Yep. I mm -hmm. felt threatened for my life. If you just say those three words, you get the pass. And that's what he said. And America, again, accepted the narrative irrespective of all the irrefutable evidence to say this doesn't add up. I want to just address something from a, a professional perspective because I think the question of why, especially Attorney Crump and I are here beside Jason and Leslie, now that our aspect of the case um, is resolved, why are we here? We're here because being an attorney is not enough. I know that for both Benjamin Crump and I, that our law degree is just a tool. It's a tool that we use for a higher purpose and a greater end. And we're here because we have love for people. We have love for Leslie. We love our clients. And we work as a legal team from a place of love. And that's what we bring into the courtroom. And that four-letter word is so often left out of universities. It's left out of academia, but it's the foundation of most faiths around the world. And it should be the foundation of your professional life, whatever your professional life is. And you can't make a difference in civil and human rights unless you take a multidisciplinary approach. So that's why we need to be in the courtroom. That's why we need to stand in front of you guys here at the university. Um, that's why uh, Jason needs to tell this story through the film and why Leslie needs to keep telling it, because we all have to work together in as many mediums as we can to create social change. Black letter law is not enough. Just because I write something in the law books, we can write the most beautiful laws in the world. We should continue advocating to make better rights that protect more people. But that's not enough, because if you have inequitable minds sitting on benches and inequitable minds sitting in jurors' boxes, then you're going to continue to get the inequitable resolutions that we see over and over in our nation. Mm -hmm. So being a lawyer is not enough, and that's why we're here. And, and can I put it in full context for you? I think the other reason why we're here, and Leslie and I talked uh, briefly today, you know, since Michael Brown was killed, can you imagine how many more hashtags in America that we've had? I mean, just think about all the names we've come to know because, yet again, unarmed black men unnecessarily and unjustifiably were killed by the people who are supposed to protect and serve them. And so when you put it in full context, Michael is unarmed, and unfortunately, as much as the court wants to tell us, you know, justice is blind, we know that there are two ways that the police approach uh, minorities and white people in America. We think about the fact that you had an unarmed white man go into a school, kill thir uh, shoot 34 students, killing 17 of them. Mm -hmm. 
The police followed him, but yet they took him alive. And then you think about Austin, Texas. I mean, you had a young white man bombing homes, Mm -hmm. killed multiple people. The police followed him for hours, took him alive. And then you think about just last week in Massachusetts, a young white man killed a police officer, killed him, had 122 offenses pending, but yet they took him alive. Uh, You think about the fact that just today, the Waffle House shooting in uh, Tennessee killed four people, four innocent people, making all kind of racist statements. The police take him alive. And we certainly can't forget about Dylan Roof, the young white supremacist who went and killed nine of the most innocent people you could ever find in the church in South Carolina. And in the interviews, he said, and Khalif, you know, he said that uh, I felt so bad about killing them because they were so nice to me. And then the police not only take him alive, but they take him to Burger King to get a burger and fries. Where's the humanity for Michael Brown, for Stephon Clark, for Alton Sterling, for for Lando Castile? I mean, it just goes on and on about a young black man unarmed if he moves a certain way, we don't get the benefit of the doubt or the benefit of consideration. We get bullets. But yet a young white man who's already murdered people get more consideration than a young unarmed black man in America. And that's the full context why we're here talking about Michael Brown's death and why it still matters in America today. That's right. That's right. So I, I know that Ashley wants to talk uh, or share at least uh, some commentary about how the story moved into the media. But I think for those who did not see the film, and that's at least half of the people here, and of course there's also uh, a, an online audience, I just want to summarize some of the evidence that you present. So this is just a catalog. Um, the initial chief uh, of the St. Louis County says that the entire um, shooting and murder of Mike Brown occurs over a 35 foot space and describes a couple of shots in initial reporting. Then there is uh, Bob McCullough's prejudicial history as the attorney whose father had been killed uh, by an African American man in 1964 and has spent 23 years as a prosecutor. So this raised the question of whether he was fit uh, to serve in this con- uh, capacity. Jason shows footage of a contractor. Uh, who is shown visibly in the moment of the actual shooting of Mike Brown, where Mike is on the ground demonstrating what he saw and saying out loud, they had no right to do that. There's no justification for this. So here we have an eyewitness um, saying this. The police incident report, again, for those who watch the film, you know all this, but for those who haven't, goes empty for several days. The police do not file an incident report on the actual killing of Mike Brown. By contrast, the alleged robbery the day before gets several pages. The documented evidence of uh, Darren Wilson having been a, a disgraced and or fired former police officer for neighboring Genix, Genix um, Police Department precedes it. And perhaps the one that is 
most compelling in this story is that in the grand jury testimony by Officer Darren Wilson is on the record saying he did not know about the robbery call. So putting that evidence in the film and back into the public, the one thing I want to hold up here is that the Department of Justice says, quote, in their report on the shooting of Michael Brown, we did not credit nor determine that a jury appropriately would credit those witness accounts that were contrary to the physical and forensic evidence, significantly inconsistent with other credible witness accounts, or significantly inconsistent with what that witness's own prior statements was. Elsewhere, they also say, we assess the witness's demeanor, tone, bias, and ability to accurately perceive or recall the events. Translation, by the Department of Justice's own standards, they threw out almost all the testimony of those who contradicted the police account, yeah. but by those standards, the very police officials who are on television describing it in the earliest days, mm -hmm. their own testimony is refuted by the exact evidence that they're describing as physical. In other words, the whole shooting took place over 180 feet. Mm -hmm. There were 12 shots. So the chief of police for St. County Police Department's own testimony should have been thrown out precisely because he's no more credible a witness. And this is not even whether you take the argument that Jason is crafting a story prejudicial to Leslie's interest doesn't change the fact that the chief of police went on television to say this. Mm -hmm. Or the story of the municipal uh, police commissioner whose own going on the record saying the robbery had nothing to do with the stop. Right. And yet the DOJ report opens, its opening mm -hmm. paragraph narrates a story of Michael Brown having committed a robbery when he was stopped by Officer Wilson who knew over the radio. So how do we explain the Department of Justice's inconsistencies and double standards, which is separate and apart from the larger problem that you described of a double standard of racism in our police agencies? I, I'll just say very simply, that's a, that is so critical that people remember all the contradictions. Yes. And what you have, I think, are two terms, uh, and, and it's Harvard, so you all get this, reverse engineering justice. Mm -hmm. They get the conclusion they want, and then they go make it fit somehow. And they mm -hmm. intellectually justify, I like to call it, and Jasmine and I like to call it, the intellectual justification of discrimination. Because that's what it is. I mean, these secret grand jury proceedings, if you just think about the fact that when prosecutors go to grand juries, 99.9999999% mm -hmm. of the time, they get an indictment because, you know, you got one lawyer in the room and all these lay people, and so they're going to do what the prosecutor wants them to do, except when it's the police killing a minority. Mm. Then I think that's almost in reverse of them getting indictments. I mean, they never get indictments. Mm -hmm. Hardly when it's a black person laying on the ground as a victim and a police officer, uh, no matter how outrageous the facts are. I mean, Tamir Rice, 12 years old, 
playing on the playground by himself. 12 seconds. Yeah. How do you make in, that decision? Yeah. I mean, in less than 1.7 seconds. Yeah. And, and so they never can get it right when it comes to getting justice for our lives. But when we are charged with crimes, oh, they always get indictments. Mm. And that's mm. the problem. Mm-hmm. You said something a couple of comments back about um, the narrative that the American people were told. And I think that this film does such an incredible job walking you both through the facts of the case and the contradictions that are happening while weaving in the public narrative, what people were consuming at the same time. Um, I think we have a clip of one of the, um, of some of the media, and I'm curious to know um, after they play it, like how does that impact these cases? And, and given how overwhelming it became, what, how do you take it from there? Do we have this, perhaps? If my child or your child knocked over a convenience store and then went down the middle of the street shouting profanities at a police officer, let's, let, let's just say again on Staten Island in Queens, and then went into the car and started punching the police officer and grabbing for his gun, He'd probably be shot in the car. So you have some pretty prominent media figures, some former IOP uh, fellows. Uh, uh, you know, the only thing I would say to Joe Scarborough is, what would he say to the Waffle House killer who was taken alive? Mm-hmm. I mean, white murderers get more consideration than black unarmed men. And that is a problem because the media keeps trying to say, Oh, the cold word is he's black. He's a criminal. Mm. He's evil. And, but Michael Brown didn't kill anybody. No. Mm-hmm. All these other guys we named early in the conversation, they were murderers. Right. They had killed people. But white murderers get more consideration than young unarmed black men in America. When you just look at the facts of who the police choose to kill and who the police used to use less restricted amounts of force. And don't take Ben Crump's word for it. Just go do your research yourself and watch how many times they take white young men who murdered people alive versus how many times black people charged with misdemeanors. Even if Mike would have been guilty of the crime, what would have been the worst charge they would have gave him? It would have been a misdemeanor, but yet you use deadly force. Right. I think media is really critical. Um, as we know, it can be helpful. When we're talking about just the realm of, of civil and human rights and social justice, it can be very helpful to forward causes, and it can be very harmful. And my approach in terms of controlling the narrative of the cases that I work on, the nation has written a narrative against the people I serve from the founding of this country. Um, since the time the Constitution was enacted and I didn't have the right to vote and Mr. Crump wasn't a full human being. Um, So I have a responsibility as a civil rights attorney and I'm unapologetic about the amount of media I do on behalf of my clients to correct the narrative throughout this country because I don't want Mr. Crump's daughter, Brooklyn, growing up to see only negative images of herself on television. And when I have my children, I don't want my children to grow up and believe believe this, this lack of reality that's projected on TV. This, to steal a quote from our president, which I don't often do, is fake news. <laughs> and um, 
we have a job to tell the truth. And um, you know, as attorneys, we, we take an oath, and that oath goes beyond the courtroom, like I said, that, that goes to um, correcting the narrative in the media. And I think you know, Jason's documentary has done an incredible job. Yes. You know, there's some other evidence, uh, and I hope that one day the documents from the case will be unsealed, but there's a mm. few things I can say that in Darren Wilson's response to his request for admissions, which is a legal tool we use, and you can either admit or deny a question that an attorney poses. He actually admitted to using the N-word. I don't even use it for academic purposes. Mm. On the record. And he admitted that officers in Ferguson Police Department use the N-word on a regular basis. So how can you say that these officers have a culture of referring to African Americans using the N-word, but that this specific case was not racially motivated? And you have um, Darren Wilson also using words and, and calling Michael Brown a demon and calling him the Incredible Hulk. What do those terms mean? What do those terms communicate? They mm -hmm. are subhuman and they are superhuman, but at no point does he refer to Michael Brown as a human being, which is what's required of law enforcement officers. You have to have a, a, a reasonable appreciation um, to be able to interpret whether or not you should use force. So if you're looking at someone and you see the Incredible Hulk, or if you see a demon, then you have much bigger problems going on upstairs. And you shouldn't be a cop. And you shouldn't <laughs> be a cop. So there's a... <laughs> There's a line um, in the interview that Darren Wilson gives to George Stephanopoulos, which oh. you uh, mm -hmm. use um, in the documentary. And uh, at the time, I watched it live. I ended up writing an op-ed that was later published in The Nation about it because I basically, the piece ended up being titled Darren, Wals Darren Wilson, America's Model Policeman. And the basic argument was, here's a man who, at best, at best, um, killed somebody, this was before your film. So I'm as vulnerable to the DOJ's Michael Brown report as anybody else trying to give Eric Holder and the, the Obama administration the benefit of the doubt that this was a, a clean investigation. So in that moment, See, I'm I, never, trying to, I never did that. Well, you, good for you. Um, I'm trying to split the difference between sort of the facts of Mike as I understand him from the DOJ and the subsequent Ferguson report which was all about systemic racism and using the black community to fund municipal services mm -hmm. in this town. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, he says, Darren Wilson says to George Stephanopoulos in this interview, he says, my fear was the only, ex the only emotion I felt and my training took over because mm -hmm. a good police officer can't have racism mm -hmm. in his mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. And all I could think about was that what he's really saying is, it's perfectly acceptable to kill a black person when you're afraid of them. That's what we're trained to do. Yeah. And so this is a predictable outcome and I can't be held responsible for it. Now the notion that you can't have racism in your body, of course, was a talking point for him at that point because mm -hmm. he knew full well the culture that he left in Jennings and the culture that he arrived in in Ferguson. But I wanted to have you talk about how you use history in this documentary to open up the space uh, that how the African-American community responded to um, Michael Brown, whose body lay mm -hmm. on the street for four and a half hours. Sure, uh, so you know, we, I want, we wanted to show more of the context of what was happening in Ferguson just besides August 9th, so uh, we talked a lot about just the city of St. Louis, and so we talk a lot about the, uh, there, there, was, there was an uprising in St. Louis where 
thousands of black Americans were murdered in a, in a mob-like mentality uh, in, in the early 1900s in St. Louis. And this, again, was completely covered up. And it actually came out in the news when the, uh, the Florida massacre happened and Obama went on the news and said that those 60 people was the largest mass shooting in American history. And all these people in St. Louis said, yeah. well, actually, it's not. Yeah. Uh, hundreds of people were murdered in this incident. So we wanted to show that as well as just talk about, again, like what I was saying at the beginning, how this is the murder capital of the country. And Jason, just tell the full context of that, though. You had an allegation of a, a white woman who says she'd been raped by a white man and you had the whole narrative and then the mob, the white mob just came and killed innocent men, women, and children. Correct, yes. Everybody they saw in their sight. That's right. I mean, uh, they, Tracy. They, they were burning their homes. Yeah. And then as they ran from their homes, they were firing. Yeah. I mean, this is like the freaking Holocaust, basically. Like, yeah. this is what our country is built on, folks. Yeah. Like, this happened in many cities. We have covered all of this up. White America thinks that this is like some kind of Coca-Cola place. No, our country is built on genocide, slavery, and destruction, and white supremacy. And until we come to grips with that, we're never gonna get anywhere. And until we come to grips with that as white people, people like Donald Trump are still gonna get elected. Like if the white Democrats don't come to grips with their own racism, he's gonna win in 2020. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think, well, um, We'll take a Off couple subject. questions from the audience. <laughs> if people want to start lining up to ask, I'm sure people have questions, um, but keep going. I had a, just a, this yeah. is a hopeful moment as we prepare for questions, and I wanted Leslie to um, respond to how she thinks about sort of how you communicate to young people, how to hold on to something that is optimistic in the midst of you know, the history and the craziness. But Brian Stevenson, who is an HKS alum, has uh, worked very hard over the past several years to, uh, to describe what he calls um, the narrative of racial difference as the greatest legacy of slavery and genocide in this country, um, of the displacement and the land theft of Native people. And that narrative of racial difference essentially says that because these people are different from white people, they were undeserving of their full humanity, undeserving of their citizenship when they gained it, undeserving of the things that they had before white people came. And so as a way of correcting this past, as a way of memorializing Michael Brown, because that's part of the story that brings the past into the present, he's opening on Thursday a memorial of lynching victims, a national memorial for lynching victims, and the Legacy Museum, which is to tell the story from slavery to mass incarceration. And I just wanted you to share anything to young people here in the audience about how that history might or might not be a helpful way to move forward, to build a new narrative of America. Well, it's a history that hasn't been told. And our children that are growing up now We'll never forget what happened to Michael Brown, Tamir, Trayvon, and all the ones that they've witnessed in this 21st century. But first, let me say that I have nephews and I have a younger son, and the phrase is that I'm scared of the police. And I reassure them not to be scared because Darren Wilson was not a police officer. He did not act as a police officer. He did not perform his job or his duties 
as a police officer. We all rely on the police a time or two here or there, and I have officers in my family, and that's not what they exhibit as being an officer, a peacekeeper, someone to serve and protect, that you call for help. Mm -hmm. So I reassure them with those words. We started a foundation for my son. We, we do a number of things in the community with our younger children, not just boys, boys and girls, mm -hmm. because we want to show them some different corners of the world than just what's in Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, the garden yeah. is, um, my son suffered with hypertension starting at 14, and um, he had to take hydrodichloroside and also a water pill, and as a part of his legacy, we started a Michael Brown Growing and Learning Garden, and um, it's a partnership that I have with St. Louis County Police Department, mm -hmm. not Ferguson, St. Louis County. And um, <laughs> yeah, that says a lot. But we we just what we're trying to do is keep hope there, hold on to faith, and just pray that this will change the hearts of some of those people there. We're seeing new people be elected, but will it change what happened then? No but we can change the course of what may happen tomorrow and what we see happening now. And that's no laws to protect us as black and brown people. We just want people to have an understanding of what goes on in these areas that we live in that will not get talked about on the news, that will not be publicized, the media will not come out and show those parts. Even having corner stores at every corner like the store Michael visited, that makes it easy to obtain drugs, guns, synthetic drugs, all the things we see hurting the community right now. Those are the places you can go and get those things. But what's strange is that that is a Ferguson substation. The police are there often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if there was any problem in the store that night between the workers and Michael, all they had to do was press a button or give a call but we didn't see that part because mm -mm. there wasn't a problem. Mm -mm. It was more of an understanding. Mm -hmm. Talk about the petition. Sure. Yeah. And, and please talk about what you're contemplating. <laughs> <laughs> you are. What I'm contemplating is running for city council of Ferguson. <laughs> run, Leslie, run. I think you got a lot of absentee voters in the room. <laughs> um, there are several people back home that are willing to help me get that going and make sure that I'm treated right along with Crump and some other people. But um, I am I nervous? What a legacy that would yeah. be. Elected to the city council and supervising the same Ferguson Police Department who yeah. killed Michael Brown. That it's would scary. be a legacy. Okay. I think um, you could have a lot of volunteers from this room <laughs> come come out and help you. That would be great, but that is um, that's part of my mission. Mm -hmm. Also, this this bill and this petition that 
um, some of the Howard Law students have helped me put together in my son's name. It's 30 pages. It cannot bring him back. It can't protect him, but it can protect all of us. And it can show them that we're not going away, that we do have a mind and we have voices. And slavery days are, are well over with. And um, we're pushing forward and we're coming through. And we have to get behind people that look like us Amen. and get them in these elected seats yeah. so that they can really do what's right by the community. And um, I'm going to start with me by running for Ferguson City Council. Yeah. And hopefully I can elevate. So we'll, we'll take the first question, but at some point during the Q&A, if any of you could talk about the petition and mm -hmm. who's being petitioned and on what terms. Hello. Test? Okay. Yeah, I just uh, want to thank you uh, for coming out with this, uh, this film um, and finally setting the record straight about the facts of the case. Uh, I think it's really important for millions of people to see it and to, to really discuss it. I, I just wanted to uh, ask <clears throat> what, you're, what kind of things you are asking for people to do in light of this, which is kind of one of the things raised in the film, and it actually some, some I, I'm part of a group called Mass Action Against Police Brutality that's been very active in this, in this region, especially the city of Boston, um, trying to help families who've lost loved ones to the police. And there are, there are a lot of these families in the same position that they never got a trial, you know? And so we, one of the main demands we've been raising is to reopen these cases. The idea that the fight is over is, is false. The exactly. fight for the criminal prosecution of the police that have committed these murders, like Darren Wilson, he is not safe. You know what I'm saying? Correct. Like, this, this struggle continues, but what are the practical questions or, or things people can do to, to raise this demand, to reopen the case? What are you asking people to do? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, this is a lot more than a movie. This is a movement, and this is, today is one of the first big days of this movement, really. Um, we are going to be launching a petition. We haven't launched it yet because, so the, the film came out on April 3rd, and we had all these publicists trying to pitch it, and no one, no one wanted to talk about Mike Brown because everyone was telling us that they had to talk about Stefan Clark because that was the, that was the hashtag th that's happening right now. Yeah. Right. So this day is actually very important because this is going to help us bubble up in the conversation and remind all these journalists that you know what, we do need to be talking about Mike Brown because the media and the activist movement, we keep losing these cases and we go to the streets and then we lose and then they kill another one and we go to the streets and then we lose and then they kill another one and we go to the streets and we, I'm tired of that. So this is our chance to win one. And I just spent four years making this little thing so that in an hour and 45 minutes, anyone with a heart and a brain can watch this and know that we messed this one up. And let's win one. Let's win one. Well, let's talk about who losing, though. Let, uh, people sometimes get that mistaken. The people who are losing, and I, I submit they're losing intentionally, is the elected district attorneys mm -hmm. who have a symbiotic relationship right. with the police department and, more importantly, the police unions. And so in all these cases, even when you got video, like on Philando Castile and Tamir Rice, and Eric Gardner, 
they still throw it. And we got to not be confused about who's losing the cases. Civil rights lawyers, all we can do is go bring a wrongful death lawsuit. That's what our system says. Only private people can, all we can do is bring a civil suit. It is only the elected government officials who can convict somebody and take their liberty away from them. And so what we have to do is hold these people accountable. And I know they say, well, how do we do that? The police union are more powerful than us. They got more people than us. They got more money than us. Well, you know, they said that about slavery too. Mm -hmm. They said that about segregation. Mm -hmm. And despite how many times they tell us over and over again, as Jasmine and I often argue in courtrooms all across America against this intellectual justification, we have to always remember what Martin Luther King said, especially remembering the 50-year anniversary of his transition from this world when he was in that Birmingham jail and he wrote that letter. He said moral people have an obligation to oppose injustice. And just because they say it's legal, that don't make it right. right. That's right. That's Everything right. Hitler did to the Jews in Germany was legal, That's right. but that didn't make it right. Slavery was Slavery legal. Slavery was legal. That didn't make it right. right. Segregation was legal. That didn't make it right. So I don't get discouraged because I know we overcame slavery. If we can overcome slavery, we can overcome police brutality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, I just want to mention real quick, just to finish, we're going to take the film on a national tour. We're going to take the film on a worldwide tour. We're raising nonprofit dollars right now uh, to, to build those tours so that we can bring the film to free for all, to all the major black hubs in the country, roll out the red carpet for Leslie, and have a really special moment and build a huge platform for the Brown family to bring Mike's legacy to not just the nation but the world. Like I think that we're going to do a big premiere in a lot of different countries because Mike is a, everybody knows this guy, well, and they Ferguson all want to see justice for him. That's yeah. right. So I think that this movement is, has been sitting there and this is the spark that's gonna bring it back up to the top again. Jason, how can they get the film? Okay, so the film's on iTunes, Amazon, and VOD. <laughs> VOD is like the video on demand in your cable box, so it's literally on every cable box in America right now. Um, and I donated most of the profits of the film to the Brown family, so that if the film becomes profitable and goes super viral, it will raise money for the Brown family, and hopefully it will be a vehicle to raise money for the Brown family and bring justice uh, to Michael Brown. So right now it's on VOD, and please uh, tell and everyone, iTunes. and iTunes, Amazon, everywhere you can get it. And then on <laughs> June 18th, uh, we're having our television premiere on Stars. And that's really, really special to me, too, because I love power. Oh, come and on now. All right. <laughs> that's the question. So, so <laughs> just a reminder, in the interest of time, you know, a question, and uh, we'll move on. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I first want to thank you all for being here, and thank you for... Um, the people who had the vision to even make this event happen. Uh, I think a lot of people who come to Harvard don't normally face, don't normally directly interact with um, issues of police brutality. And those of us who have in the past, once we get here, it's a very, and I know what happened last Friday um, here to one of the students, but I think generally we're not normally interacting with police violence in that way, um, especially because places like this don't always want to have those frank conversations on a public platform like this. So for students who are in this room and ascend to these 
you know, ivory towers, how can we still confront some of these issues and be a resource and an asset to, to, to these, to your efforts? It's Taylor May for you, Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> She's a professor. <laughs> yes, I'm actually a, a professor as well, and I take a lot of the content that Attorney Crump and I work on in our cases, and I try to bring it into the academic world to inspire students. And, um, you know, when I first started teaching, it's funny because I, I thought my job, I kind of wanted to turn everybody into, like, another civil and human rights attorney. <laughs> and then the more I saw that this approach truly has to be multidisciplinary, I feel like the best way that I can serve my students now is inspiring them to be the best at whatever you know, skill set that they've been given and they've been blessed with. So Jason is an incredible filmmaker and he's bringing the story through um, film. So don't go changing your career path unless that's what you want to do. Be the best and, and whatever you're called to do while you're here on earth and don't leave behind the issues that, of you know, civil and human rights and justice. So if you're working at a large corporate law firm and Take some, ask them to donate some of their money to an important cause. You know, if you're a doctor, donate some of your time to going to neighborhoods that are less privileged because police brutality doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because we systemically devalue black life in every aspect of society. And your name, please. Yes. Um, hello? Okay. Yeah. Uh, peace, y'all. I'm JD. I'm a college student uh, and an organizer. And so this, my comments and questions directed towards Leslie. Um, so I have your book in my hand. Um, and I just want to say, I hope this is not weird, but if you haven't read Tell the Truth and Shame the Devil, you definitely should. Um, yeah, let's give it up for, for the book. Yeah. Um, and so with that in mind, I really appreciated reading this two summers ago because, like, um, I think it's because I'm a mama's boy, but I really appreciate the fact you allowed us to get to know you. And I think with like the mothers of the movement, as you and others have been called, um, I think it's great that we get to like know your story is not just a mother. Um, so with that in mind, I'm curious to know if if, if you wouldn't mind sharing like how was your experience of writing this 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 book and putting it out. <laughs> you know what. <laughs> <laughs> When the idea was brought to me about writing the book, I wanted to talk about everything that I was going through at the moment. But Lord Crump was like, you can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about it today. And Jason said, you can't talk about that. <laughs> so when I visited um, Simon & Schuster, write a, yeah, <laughs> a young lady there, um, she she graduated from the from Ladue, the high school that I attended. Didn't graduate from, but I graduated last year from Jennings. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with 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 her 18 year old daughter, who graduated. <laughs> yeah, they graduated, graduated together. The same time. It was amazing. She let me graduate with her. I had to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she went to Ladue and hadn't been in St. Louis for over 20-plus years. And she was curious about the atmosphere and the tone. When I visited Ladue and me being deseg from the city to the county, going from the neighborhood to a subdivision, you know, and people judging me and looking at me and talking about me from the bus stop to the front doors of Ladue. And that's how that kind of got wrote and I had to tell about my life because I had Michael at 16 years old 
and um I had to mature and he had to grow up but never did I think at 18 would I see my baby laying in the street and my whole world was gonna change at 35 so that's kind of how it came about and now well when it's time I'll tell part two <laughs> of um of what else happened from the part it ends into where we are right now. Right. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you. And I think we're gonna take this question and that question. Are you in line for questions? The the, the floor is closed to well, I need a cue. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get kicked off. We're over, <laughs> yeah. So um Everyone that's out of mic will take, and uh, that'll be that. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Laura Soul Brown. And um, thank you, um, Attorney Crump, for reminding us of what Martin Luther King Jr. said about the moral compass being long, mm -hmm. of the universe being long. Mm -hmm. um, I have two questions. One uh, relates to this notion of being armed or unarmed. And we hear a lot about the gun lobby in this country and how we as American citizens have the right to bear arms. So I'm curious, it always comes up for me, you know, is there something in our constitution or laws that says that black people do not have this right? Because there's always raised this assumption, oh, I think that person, that black person was armed and therefore I should shoot them. However, we have that right. And I just want to throw this out because I know you want me to move on. I'm curious also, Jason, that you've taken on this struggle and I commend you for uh, stepping out of your whiteness. Mm. And I'm wondering what has happened for you business-wise as a result of that. Yeah. I'll take the first one, Jason. Okay. I can't answer the second one. <laughs> 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 Tell them how it was for Jason to step out of his whiteness. <laughs> uh, you know, I wrote an op-ed piece for Time Magazine called The Danger of Being a Black Man with Car Trouble. Uh, because Corey Jones, who we represent in West Palm Beach, Florida, had uh, his car broke down mm -hmm. off of I-95 in Palm Beach Gardens at 3 in the morning. He was a church drummer. Uh, he uh, was a drummer with a a reggae band, but also he taught children in the church. I mean, just a great young man. Uh, I mean, a wonderful citizen. Uh, good job, 34 years old, just a, a tremendous young man. But he was black. He was on the side of the road at 3 in the morning, and he was waiting for the tow truck driver to come. An uh, undercover police officer came up in a white utility van in jeans, a T-shirt, and a baseball cap at 3 in the morning. Think about how vulnerable you are on the side of the highway, I mean, just off the exit ramp. Mm -hmm. And he parks perpendicular, just rolls up on him. And he gets out of his car, and he says to him, uh, you got we got a problem like that right there, and Corey is a licensed gun registered owner. Mm -hmm. 
He doesn't know this guy from Adam. I mean, just think about that, three in the morning, somebody jump out the car on you and pull up, he's thinking, he's getting robbed, but you, we'll never know what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. But Corey shows him that he has a gun and says, we all good. That's his response. The cop says, no hell we ain't, and they drop the weapon, drop the weapon. Like that right there. Now, Corey, even though he had this gun, and if anybody had a right to stand your ground, talking about stand your ground in our state, you know, as we all learned from Trayvon, had a right to stand his ground. But he starts off running. He never shoots. The police officer runs after him, shoots at him eight times, hits him twice, he dies. And the narrative is, well, he, I felt in fear of my life, of course. He had a gun. But evidence are stu- and facts are stubborn little things because Corey's gun was never fired. And then by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, he was on the phone with the tow truck company, and they caught the recording of everything. Mm. Mm. And... It showed the police officer lie four times. And in fact, he lied so graphically that he shot a, a volley of bullets at first and then said something on the recording to try to make it look like his life was in danger and then shot more bullets. And then with all that evidence, a lot of people are still trying to say, well, he shouldn't go to jail. And you say, at what point does the NRA step in? Like with Philando Castile, where they had on, you know, these black citizens who were registered with guns. I mean, it's like crickets when it's a black person with a gun. So I could go on and on, but I'll shut up there. But just look at that case uh, and, and ask the NR, where are they at on Corey Jones' case and on Philando Castile's case? I mean, if anybody had a right to stand their ground, it was Corey that night. And, and Philando uh-huh. had his baby in the back seat, so I, that's unbelievable to me. And it's really just coded racism. That's all it is. Well, we're going to say this, but we really, it's just white and black. That's all it is. They're, they hide behind all these legal arguments, yeah. but it's just white and black. Yep. So anyway, to answer your question, uh, I've lost most of my friends. Um, not that I lost them. Like, I just don't want them anymore. Like, I don't have time <laughs> for these fucking people. Um, <laughs> And my business is like, my, I, my, I'm like a weird guy. My, my, I, don't really, I don't have like a job. So uh, uh, I didn't have like a, I did whatever I wanted before Ferguson too. So like I would never have really helped any of those people business-wise anyways because I had, you know, I felt like with my digital skills, it's like very valuable. And like I only help people that I really cared about with that stuff yeah. basically. Um, but in terms of my personal life, uh, I have a whole new set of friends basically. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard for me to connect with white people. Me too. Basically. <laughs> Next. Oh, oh, my God. I hear you. Before, before we move on, before we move Jasmine on. Jasmine has something yeah. to say about that. Before we move on, I really want to address something she said, because I think it's so important. I think people really think this in their heads a lot, but nobody ever dares to say it out loud. What does it feel like to step out of your whiteness? Yeah, that's a great line, by the way. As a white woman, I will never step out of my whiteness. Right. I can't step out of my whiteness. No. Yep. And that's so right. many 
white people who work in civil and human rights make the mistake of assuming that after a period of time, I have a degree in African American studies, I will live, and I'm a perfectionist, I want to perfect everything. I will never know what it's like <laughs> to live a day in the life of a black woman. That's right. Um, I will never know. Because when we go into a grocery store, no one thinks that we're going to rob the store. Leslie and I went every this, day. so much of this experience together, and we experienced it in a very different way because Leslie is a black woman and I am a mm -hmm. white woman. We can connect as women. We experience a lot of things in the same way as women, but you know, I'm going to teach my kids that this doesn't matter. You look at the color of my skin and his, it's so insignificant to me from a spiritual level because I believe in God and God is love. And I think no matter what religion you believe in, that that's, that's our core, that's our foundation, and our skin color doesn't matter. But that doesn't mean that it has not come to have this incredible social construction. Mm -hmm. And that social construction is significant every day of our lives here. And I will never forget the fact that I am a white woman until the world forgets the fact that he's a black man. Yeah. All right. There you go. Hey, well said. Wow. All right, Let speed round. Wow. I'm going to ask you a question. Let's say something. Go ahead. I just, <laughs> I'm trying. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to say, I, I asked Jason that question, too. Like, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I didn't, I met, I've met Jason's, some of his friends, and more importantly, I've met his father. So, to know that he supports him, supporting us, and those are his parents who raised him, it meant a lot to me. So yeah. I don't ever expect him to step out of his whiteness. I love him for who he is, and I'm so happy that. I love you too. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy that he, he came to me, and um, he's put in the energy and the effort to do this and stay on top of it even after they said the case was over. This will never be over for us, and it will never go away. Thank you, And Jason. I'm never going away, either. Yeah. We're going to keep fighting on this. All right, so we're going to take, and, and we, take and, these and questions. The civil side was victorious, but, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all you can do is they give you a, a couple pieces of silver and try to say, all right, you should be happy. Mm -hmm. There's a hole in Leslie's heart, Sabrina's heart, yep. Tamara's heart. Uh, all these mothers that'll never be filled. I mean, I'll just say this and then, I know I'm going off script. Think about this, y'all. If you lose a spouse, we have in the English language a definition, we call it a widow. If you lose a parent, we have the word, we call it uh, orphan. If you lose a child, I mean, it's so against the natural order of things. We can't even name it. There's no word to define it. Mm -hmm. That's how painful it is to bury your child because everybody believes that their child is going to bury them. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at all these mothers, it's always the same. How do you feel that hole? You never do. Nothing the court system can do. Even if he's convicted, mm -hmm. that won't bring Michael back. That's right. And so what we got to do is try to say, if we can convict them, maybe there'll be less hoes and less hearts of black mothers. I think we got it. Calm down the PTSD. Just a quick question, a quick question, a quick question. We're going to take all three in case they overlap. Okay. Get, gain a little efficiency here. And, Thank uh, you, Al, for keeping us keep on track. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. So. 
I'm a resident of Boston, and obviously I'm black, so I am no better. I'm the target of probably every, you know, racist police officers out there. First of all, I want to thank you, Leslie, for your strength, for standing here. My mother is an immigrant. She speaks very little English, and if I had been Michael Brown, my mother wouldn't even been able to sit here. So we love you for what you do, and the nation, the world is getting strength to do this movement of Black Lives Matter from you. You are the mothers of every black man in this country. It exploded off of you. And I love that ring that you have on. Okay. Thank you. Now you go in that city, you run it, make them see your face every day, because they will see how dark they are every time they see you. You will be the light of this city. Now my question is, I'm glad you mentioned that. You gotta say, run, Leslie, run. Run, Leslie, run. Run, Leslie, run. Run, Leslie, run. My question, I'm glad that I get to ask my question now, because... I think even though this is a chaos, the world see it. It's a civil rights movement, but at the core of the story is a mother living with the absence of a child. Mm -hmm. Are you healed? And if you are, what has been the healing thing for you? Wow. Okay. Okay. Give us some thought. Good question. It's a really great question. It is. And it's... Brandon? We're going to come back. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I know, I know. We're going to get on. All right. 100%. Okay. Uh, my name is Brandon Stevens. I am a, a mid-career MPA here at the uh, Kennedy School, and I'm also uh, Cherokee Indian. What I want to uh, ask, particular to Mr. Pollock, uh, is and, and also to you guys, you've you've opened up a door uh, to uh, some enlightenment to some areas, especially in our native communities and tribal communities across the country. The Violence Against Women Act, the many laws that uh, govern violence, whether it's murder, rape, robbery, does not exist for my people. Yep. Mm. It's possible to come on to my reservation, assault me, murder me, rape me, and there's no justice. That does not come to light. We've worked on this. We went to our congressman in Western North Carolina in the 16th Congressional District, said, please support the, re- uh, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which includes the prosecution of non-native uh, members coming onto reservations, raping women, sexual assault. Can't do it. Sorry. Uh, there's some wording in there that supports LGBTQ, uh, same-sex couples engaging in domestic violence. We got shot down in our own community. When it happens, when we're killed on our reservations, it doesn't even make the newspapers. So, Mr. Pollock, you bring to us a very big voice to bring this to light. We invite you to Indian country Mm. to see these same lives that are are being murdered and raped. And uh, to you, uh, Ms. McSpadden, I have the first $5 to contribute to your campaign. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Can you, can you come to Indian country? Can you spend time with Native people? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Thank you. Final Hello. question. Hello. My name is Clarice Chang. I'm a second year here at the Kennedy School. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Really, it's... I, yeah, I, I can't say more than that, really. I'm really, truly honored to be able to meet you all in person. Uh, I had a question about semantics and narratives in terms of how we talk about police violence. Mm. As you may know, two Fridays ago, there was an incident here in Cambridge in which a unarmed black Harvard College student who needed mental health support was tackled by the police and 
beaten. To use the technical term, he was, there was allegedly undue force used. Uh, the different schools responded and the deans of the Kennedy School responded with an email that said, Friday's encounter with Cambridge police and Harvard College student with no mention of race and no mention of any of the alleged undue force. When the students asked them about why none of these very true facts were mentioned that were mentioned on the news and that are often mentioned in reports about criminal acts that are reported around Harvard Square, they said, well, we wanted a message that everyone could read. Hmm. My question is specifically for the lawyers, as I sense that from the administration and any institution of higher power, they're fearful of polarization and or legal ramifications when they use language that they deem as polarizing. Hmm. What is... What do you see as your responsibility and our responsibility as future leaders and policymakers in terms of using language that is both upholding of this school's motto, truth, veritas, as well as speaking to the actual narrative of what has happened? Thank you. Good question. So any order, um, your healing process. Okay. Mm. What I would say about that is um, it's not a sore on the top of my skin that I can see it heal. This is something that every time it happens, the scab is pulled off if it ever heals. All I can do every day is try to make myself feel better. Healing is it's not even part of my vocabulary. I don't, I'll never get over what happened to my son. But every day that God wakes me up and picks me up, and if I can make a difference and I can help another mother, like I just met Stefan Clark's family, and share with them this journey, because it's a long one. I feel a little bit better inside. But to be completely healed, I don't know if I'll ever see that or feel that because I always have that thirst and hunger for my son. Yeah. The next was the native. Uh, you have another film opportunity. Um, <laughs> just, just to off of that real quick, the most profound part of this has been connecting with you and the most feeling your pain uh, it has just, you know, it's destroyed my life, uh, too, and it's beyond comprehension how much pain you are in. I honestly, just imagine if it was your child, and then, not only the death of the child, but the cover-up of the character, which I think is the thing that is so unhuman about this and so different. Everyone thinks that Michael and, and she are thugs, she has to live with this every day. People come up to her at the grocery store and say ridiculous things to her. It's the granular details of the pain are what we don't even we can't even conceive of. And it, I don't want to live in a country like this anymore. Enough is enough. Like we have to do something about this. And the only way to fix it is to actually start getting justice. Mm -hmm. yep. That that's it. 
because now I'm so, scared for my life. That's right, and I am too. I'm terrified when I see a police officer because I know even though I'm white, that police officer can kill me and cover it up and get away with it. And it could happen to anybody in this room. And even though white people are kind of safe because police don't really brutalize us, at any point they could change because the laws are the same. They could kill us too. We don't have any freedom either. We may think we do because of the skin color, but we really live in a police state. Uh, to interject just on that there. Uh, it's the same playbook all over, every time. First they assassinate you, your person, and then they assassinate your character. Yeah. I mean, you've seen this like for years. It was Michael Brown, it was Trayvon, it was, you know. Sandra uh, Bland. Sandra Bland, yeah. Uh, all these people, but it was Emmett Till too. Absolutely. You know, but so it's always a character assassination to try to justify the tragedy. The murder. Yeah, the murder. And, 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 and trying to respond quickly to yeah. both her question and our brother Branded. from the Native American community. I, I was at Oklahoma, and you'll appreciate this as a historian. Uh, University of Oklahoma, we're talking about Black Wall Street Massacre. Some of you all yeah, right. know about that. Another early 1900 massacre of black Americans that we do not talk about at all. Uh, again, because a, a white woman alleged she was raped by a black man, that turned to be uh, a complete lie. But they literally burnt the whole black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so we were having this very intellectual conversation about, you know, Black Wall Street. And in preparing for it, I saw a quote by Dick Gregory that I thought was profound that talks about, you know, speaking truth to power and you just have to speak the truth. He said him and his brothers and sisters, when they were little, they started rooting for the Indians because they didn't think it was fair that every time they read in the history books about a massacre, uh, when it was the cavalry won, it was a great victory. But if the Indians won, it was a horrible massacre because that's how society wants to frame the narrative. And if you frame the narrative a certain way, then people start to accept the narrative. If you keep saying over and over again, well, black men are evil, black men are terrible, black men are criminals, then you look at the fact that black men make up 7% of the population in America, but we make up almost 50% of the people on death row. You got to say, well, wow, that doesn't seem right. Either black men are evil, criminals, nefarious people, or the system is broke. Yeah. I choose to believe the system is broke, yep. and I scream it from the mountaintop because we got to speak truth to power every chance we get because there are some people out here who really have accepted the narrative, yeah. and we got to say this narrative is a lie. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just real quick about the Native uh, American community. I would love, uh, be honored to come and tell, uh, help share and tell your stories with you. Uh, I've done a lot of research about it. Uh, alcoholism is through the roof in these, uh, in these places. Uh, we, it's a completely 
untold disaster area. And I believe that, again, our nation is never going to heal. And people like Donald Trump are going to continue to become elected until we deal with our past. And giving reparations to Native Americans and black people is the number one most important thing that we can do as a nation to heal. And until we do that, we're going nowhere. So I want to tell as many of those stories as possible with you. And you know, thank you hey, for the can invite. I, can I say something real quick, Khalil? Because in that narrative, in that narrative, with the Black Wall Street, remember this, y'all. We intellectually justified things legally. It was a massacre. That's what it was. One white person was killed. They try to say two, but they say that is erroneous. Over a thousand black people were killed. Uh, they at, at least they think as many as ten thousand. So. That was a massacre, but they don't call it a massacre. They try to say it was the Tulsa riots to make it seem like it was an even yep, fight. People right. were killed on both sides. That wasn't the case. But then when you start thinking about a riot versus a massacre, when you start talking about insurance and insurance claims, well, if it's a riot, then, you know, you don't get anything. But if it's a massacre, the black people could have actually, and they did try to make insurance claims, but they redefined the tragedy. They redefined the event to make it fit the narrative. Yeah. And, I, and, go ahead. I just want to offer up our services. In terms of, of you know, working with the Native American community, um, Attorney Crump and I have conversations all the time about how important it is to stand up for Latino people. Um, he's worked on a few cases involving police brutality and Latinos, and so have I, and I actually I speak Spanish, so when we're doing these cases, I try to bring this message and the story on Telemundo and, you know, in as many voices and as many languages as we can. And he and I have had conversations in the past about the Native American community. And I will volunteer my services and his, because he loves me. And <laughs> <laughs> I volunteer him for stuff all the time without asking him. But find us a case, and we'll be there. And we'll be there standing next to whatever brilliant Native American attorneys you have ready to work with us, because it's so important that you know, we unite and work on these issues together. In terms of the movement stuff, like please connect with us, we're gonna be here, like we wanna, I think that today can be a historic day in reopening the case and we will look back at this day and the people in this room and remember that it started here at Harvard. I think that classes in the politics school and the law school could easily tackle reopening the case next semester, work together and this could really be something here, like this could be a very historic day here. And just in case, you think that might be far-fetched. Uh, Charles Ogletree, who recently retired from the law school, led a civil action against the state of Oklahoma uh, to um, get reparations for the survivors at the time who were still alive in the early 1990s. He wasn't successful getting actual monetary damages, but he was successful in getting an admission of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Also, in uh, 2005, the filmmaker Keith Beauchamp released a documentary project, Nine Years in the Making, mm -hmm. called The Untold Story of the Murder of Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. That story led to uh, a FBI reinvestigation of a cold case from 1955 that essentially had some evidence to prosecute Carolyn Bryant, uh, the woman who accused Emmett Till of assaulting her, who later told a historian more recently that she in fact lied, um, the FBI determined that besides statutes of limitations, um, the case wasn't quite strong enough to carry it forward for prosecution. 
But what came out of it was the Emmett Till Unsolved Murder Civil Rights Act that was passed in 2007. It was recently um, reauthorized and forms the basis for investigating cold civil rights murders from initially the, before the 1970s to now the 1980s. I share this with you to leave on a note that what Jason and Leslie and Ben and Jasmine are doing is real. It has real consequences, but it depends on all of us. It depends on the phone calls we make. It depends on the stories we tell about what happened here. It depends upon the choices you make to run for office. It depends upon how you spend your money. These things are possible, and therefore, we should leave here knowing that we have a roadmap that we can follow. There is a blueprint for making real justice for Mike Brown. Right. So please join me in thanking all of these amazing Thank people for being here Thank tonight. for coming and for staying and I just want to underscore to you Leslie and um, this topic is so important and also there are so many people here in this community that want to be having these open honest conversations and I think this is um, not happening as often as it should. And to Clarice's point over here, the question she asked is, how can we help Harvard and more institutions have these conversations? So thank you for your grace and your strength and your courage to come here and for the work that you guys are continuing to do. And Jason, for making the film. Go download the film, Stranger Fruit. Thank and you. thank you to Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. No. Thank you. This, was a very, this was a very complicated event to, to pull off at this school, as you guys can imagine. <laughs> so thank you to Ashley for helping with that thank so much. You. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.